Thanks, Larry. Thank you, sir. Uh, I heard Vince did a great job, for those who were here last week. Yeah. He always complains when I give him a short amount of time, but even when I give him like three months, he still doesn't prep anything, so he's kind of, compl- he's kind of complaining for no reason. Um, but uh, yeah, it is, it's sure good to be back with you guys. I was down with that nasty sickness that's going around. Anybody else been fighting with that thing? Golly, it's nasty. Healing upon you all from, from that expression of the devil that hit me last week. All right, let's pray before I jump in the word, and uh, I got something on my heart I'd love to share. Lord, thank you for this time together, God. Thank you that you give us space to do this. And God, what we ask as we go into this time of the word, Lord, is I pray, God, that you would give us wisdom and understanding in the knowledge of Jesus and in the knowledge of discipleship, of following our Lord faithfully and passionately, filled with joy and filled with love. God, I pray that as, as I speak this forth, God, that you would take the words, that they would be spirit and they would be life, and God, that you would use them, God, for the betterment of your kingdom and for the joy of the people that are living here. We give you honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 26 and continue on in the book of Matthew. I like what PB did the other day. Pastor Benjamin was here, and he's like, don't pull out your phones, don't pull out your Bibles. If you want to, go ahead. But uh, if you want to just listen as I read, I think there is something powerful in just kind of like listening to the word as I speak it forth. So Matthew 26, starting in verse 47 reads this. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. Okay, so a little context. It's been a few weeks uh, before I spoke. That was the world's shortest bit of scripture, right? Like, everyone's like, is that what you're preaching on today? No, no, no. I just realized I didn't give you any context. So this is right after the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus has decided that it's his time to go to the cross. They had the Last Supper, where you can see them reclining at the table, like in that famous painting. Uh, They're eating together, they're fellowshipping together, and Jesus talks about making a new covenant with his disciples, and that that covenant was going to be made through his broken body and his shed blood, that he was going to establish a new way of connecting with God through the very sacrifice of himself. And so he starts to give them deeper understanding as to what this is going to look like, and he comes out of that setting, and he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's, he's crying, and, and he's sweating blood, and he's got so much grief about what he's about to go through that he takes his three closest friends, and he says, hey, come on, let's go. I need to pray. And he starts praying, and they fall asleep. He comes back, wakes them up, and says, can't you just pray with me for a little bit? They fall asleep again, and he goes to pray, and, uh, and this happens three times, and then, uh, and then this moment happens. So that's where we are. We're fresh out of the Garden of Gethsemane where he's had this extremely intense moment where he's saying to the Father, basically, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to go and hang in this brutal death where you pour out, where God pours out his wrath on his son so that you and I can have life and you and I can have righteousness through his son. Jesus knows what's at stake here, but he says, if there's any other way that this can happen, please, please, Let's find another way. And he exits that prayer time, understanding that this is truly the only way. And so now he's set his faith towards the cross, and he's, he's going in that direction. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? 
Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. There's a bunch of treasure in this passage. And as I was unpacking it for today's sermon, I was blown away again at just kind of the majesty and the mystery of the Bible. And so the first thing that I wanted to call out as we go through this is, you have Judas. I want to remind you that he's one of the 12 disciples that Jesus chose to spend all of his time with after he started public ministry. So they've been walking around for three years, and they've got to be very close at this time. You can imagine if you were spending every day and pretty much every hour, uh, every waking hour at least, with somebody, seeing amazing things, you know, encountering miracles and watching him cast out demons and having him teach you and love you and hug you and embrace you. And even in this passage, we see that there's an expression of intimacy that he comes up and he gives him a kiss and he says, greetings, Rabbi. I'm sure that wasn't unusual for him to do. That they've been walking around, Judas and Jesus and the other 11, for a long time. But something happened with Judas that has compelled him to now be betraying Jesus. And it's hard to know exactly what happened there for Judas. It's hard to unpack what happened there. Um, the, the, the scripture sets it up in an interesting way where right when Judas determines that he's going to betray Jesus is right on the heels of when there's this very extravagant expression of love. So the woman with the alabaster jar of perfume who breaks this like $40,000 uh, perfume over Jesus and kind of cries on his feet, this very extravagant moment of love and Judas and the other disciples are looking on in some, in semi-disgust, being like, what is, what, what is this woman doing? And, and it's right after that moment that Judas then determines that he's going to go betray Jesus. So maybe it had something to do with, you know, oftentimes when, when people have stuff going on in their heart, when you see someone in a very extravagant moment of worship, it, it feels, um, it almost solidifies the negative. You see it and you go like, ah, oh, and... and and, you know, maybe there was something there that happened with Judas. We don't really know. But what we know is that Jesus now, coming out of that moment where he's told his, his disciples that he's going to go to the cross, now Judas comes forward and he's the one who betrays him. Now, one of the most interesting things that we see in this passage as I was reading through this, I'm like, why does Judas betray him with a kiss? That is such a strange thing that that he's going to betray the one he's been following around and dedicating his life to for three years, and he comes up and he's like, I know, the perfect signal is I'll give the person a kiss. Like, that to me is just kind of a strange, a strange thing. Um, one of the things that I think we can, we can pull out of this is that the kiss is definitely representative of something. Right? It's, it's just a strange thing. And, and what I would propose is, is that a representation of intimacy Right? Like, if you thought about, if I asked you just away from the scriptures, what does a kiss represent to you? You'd probably say something like that, right? Closeness or physical expression of intimacy or something like that. And I think that's exactly what's going on in this passage. There's this term intimacy that's oftentimes thrown around in the church. You know, like, I just want intimacy with Jesus. Who's heard that before? Right? Like, if you've been around the church at any time, it's kind of like, it's commonly said, like, man, I just want intimacy with Jesus. And I want intimacy with Jesus. I'm not knocking on this. This isn't one of those where I like, but, you know, and then go and slam on something. No, no, no. I want intimacy with Jesus. But what I'd propose to you is that Judas had incredible intimacy with Jesus. He comes up and he kisses him. And this isn't strange for Jesus. There's a deep knowledge of one another. You know, the cornerstone of intimacy, if we back that out and we say, what are we saying when we say as Christians that we want something as crazy and audacious, like the audacity to say we want intimacy with God, Almighty God, we want intimacy with Him. What, what are we saying there? It's like we want a deep knowledge of Him. We want to understand His ways, but not just His ways so that we can do them, like that's good, but we want to understand why His ways exist. We want to understand the heart behind the person. Jesus said it to His disciples in this way. He said, hey, I used to call you servants, but now I call you friends. Why did they move from servants to friends? Because now I make known to you the things that I'm doing and why, is effectively what He says right after that. I let you in on the things that I'm doing. I don't just tell you to do something. I'll explain to you the heart behind them. And so there's this, 
this piece of intimacy that has to do with our connection with God that is, is a cornerstone to our Christian faith. And it has to do with deep knowledge of one another. It has to do with deep connection. It has to do with the choice to be vulnerable with one another. When we think about intimacy, oftentimes it shows up in things like kissing or sex. That's the physical expression of intimacy. But even those things, like the reason why sex is a very intimate thing is because you disrobe, which is like ultimate vulnerability, and then you go into an act that is supposed to be reserved for somebody that you truly love and had committed to. And so it's an expression of your intimacy when you go into these physical acts. But the reason why it's sacred is because what it's, what's behind it. It's this expression of a true knowledge of one another. Now, the thing that I found crazy about this is for all of the times that I've said in my prayer times and I've said in here, Lord, I want intimacy with you. I want intimacy with you. It kind of challenged me to read this, to think that Judas had deep intimacy with Jesus. They had all the things that I just told you about. But what you see here is that intimacy is not the same thing as love. Love is mutual surrender and sacrifice to one another. Sometimes out of a place of intimacy, but sometimes not. And so let me give you a couple of examples of that. Jesus says, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. What is he saying there when he's saying, love your enemies? He's saying, lay down your life for the people that hate you. Like, sacrifice for them. When they smack you across the cheek, don't smack them across theirs. Right? Like, if they, if they demand for you your coat, give them your tunic too, is what he says. If they say, hey, carry me one mile, he says, go with them an extra mile. Bless those who persecute you sacrifice, lay down your life even for the people that you have no intimacy with. So there is something that is love without intimacy. But in this case, what we see is intimacy without love. We see that the core of what's going on here with Judas is he has a deep connection, a deep familiarity, a deep knowledge with God, but it never moves him from that place into a place of commitment and sacrificial living. As soon as it becomes inconvenient for Judas, he betrays Jesus. Now, the crazy thing about this passage is the same thing happens with all of the other disciples. At the end of this, we see that the other disciples say the exact same thing. They break off, and they peel away, they abandon him, and they let Jesus go on to to, uh, be captured. And so this is, a, this is a huge deal. This actually got me thinking a lot. And I was thinking about like, what does this look like for us? What does it look like for the church to have intimacy but not have love? Because if we think about what happened with Judas, Judas being in this place and expressing it in this moment it's kind of the compelling moment, or at least what God uses towards the compelling moment of Jesus going to the cross to die. This seems kind of especially vile, if you will. I think in us, there's like this inbred thing that like hates hypocrisy, right? Like that when somebody says they're one way and then they act another and like, oh yeah, I'm always honest. I'm all the time, you know, everything. And then they show up and they do something totally vile. It's worse that they made the claim up front. And so in this one, this is like the ultimate form of hypocrisy, where, where Judas has this great intimacy, he comes up and kisses Jesus, but then as soon as it's inconvenient for him, he stabs him in the back. And so what, what would this look like for the church to have intimacy without love? I'll mention a few things, but I'd, I'd ask that you just stay open to the Spirit of God to move and to to expound on any of these as we go through them. And I want to, before I jump into them, I want to restate that my purpose is that we would know God deeply and have abundant life in knowing God, but also that we would be able to love God deeply. 
I think what we're going for here as disciples is not just a life that's self-serving to us where we have the literal love of God flowing through us and we find life and joy in that. It's like, oh, amazing. Like, I want to live there forever. Jesus says in John 15, abide in my love. Man, I want to abide in his love forever. But he also says in that passage, if you want to abide in my love, you'll do my commandments. And what are my commandments? That you love one another. And so this thing of turning the intimacy of Jesus and, and, and what we know about God, the knowledge of God, the experiences, the encounters of God that we have into a re- reciprocal thing where now we're committed to laying down our life for our Savior, this is a huge turn, a huge turn. And what I'd like to start with is the premise is that not everyone makes that turn. Not everyone makes that turn. You know, if you think about all the marriages that exist today in the United States. I think the new statistic is about 70% of them will not last. It's crazy. Divorce is an epidemic right now. And most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time when divorce is happening, it's because people on the front end don't understand what marriage is. People don't understand that the reason why you do marriage, and it starts with covenants, is because you're saying from that moment on, I'm no longer in this for what I can get primarily. I'm in this for what I can give primarily. And when you enter into marriage and that's not your starting point and that's not your continuing point, what happens is the intimacy of marriage, the deep knowledge that you have of one another, does not bear fruit and does not breed life in your union. And so what I'd propose to you is this is a huge deal for our discipleship. As soon as your love back towards God or the reciprocation of that, or as soon as we misunderstand what discipleship is, that that what being a disciple of Jesus is, is first and foremost saying, Jesus, I'm choosing right now to move from a place where I primarily just get and get and get and get and try to live this life for me to get everything that I possibly can. My primary stance towards you, God, is going to be one where I want to give first. And that making a covenant with you means that as I give to you, you've already given me everything. So I'm entering into the sacrificial love that you started by sacrificing back. And when you make that happen— that's when the richness of a marriage comes to life. Like, you want to see a great marriage? It's when the two honor and love one another and sacrifice for one another and build each other up. And it's almost like the the mental disposition that you have in that marriage is not one where you're primarily trying to figure out what makes me happy. You're thinking about, okay, what would be amazing for my spouse when I get home? You know, like, let's get in the mindset. What have they been through? Man, hard day of work. I bet they're like coming in exhausted. Maybe not, but I bet it'd be amazing if I got their favorite dinner. Or I bet it'd be amazing if, you know what, I just took care of bath time tonight. You know, but like, it's, it's this thinking about what would this person want? What would this person, what would make this person happy? What, what, knowing, using the knowledge that I have of this person, using the intimacy that I have, how do I turn that intimacy into an ability to love them in just the way that they want to be loved. That's what happens in a great marriage. That's what happens in a great friendship. It's what happens in a great, anytime there's an intimacy that's turning into a rich, filled union. The reason why the intimacy is so important is because it gives you the tools and the knowledge that you need in order to turn that into love. And that's the type of union that we want with God. That's what we want with God where we understand his ways so well that we can go into a situation, we can go, God, I know exactly what would please you in this situation. Even if your spirit doesn't speak, I've heard your voice, I know your word, I know who you are, I know your ways, I love your ways. I'm gonna move in what I know would please your heart. That is like, that's the, that's the rich circle of life of discipleship that is abundant life at the end of the day where you lay down your life for God and he's already laid down his life in the fullness for you and will continue this is you give up your life so that you can live you die so that you can live it's the paradox of the kingdom it's upside down it's weird it's twisted I think it shows up best in marriage and then in having kids 
right? Like when you talk to somebody who's just had kids, what do they say? They're like blurry-eyed. I haven't slept in three nights. They have like vomit smell coming off of them because of the spit up from the kid, you know, and you're like, oh, how have things been going? And it's like, man, I'm getting my butt kicked right now. You know, like the honest parents will say it up front. But in that place, there's this weird thing that happens where it's not, you know where I'm going with this. It's like every parent that, that does this well, that lays down their life for their kid, has this weird thing where there's this deep, rich love and connection to your child that doesn't exist in almost any other relationship. And what I'd propose to you is that this is exactly the paradox of the kingdom shown in natural form. It is a great expression of the paradox of the kingdom, where somehow it doesn't make any sense. Wait, wait, wait. You're not sleeping all night. You're getting spit up on. The child's pooping, and you're cleaning it up and, like, having to wipe ungodly places. You know, like, it, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. They're super expensive, like, all this stuff. And you're like, oh, yeah, but I'm like, oh, it's so rich. Like, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'd lay down in front of a train for my child, right? It's like, What? It doesn't make any sense, but it is a perfect expression of what this upside-down nature of the kingdom is like, where Jesus calls us to lay down our life, and what we get in return is the richness of life. And so transitioning from this thing of intimacy and turning it into love, I want to go back to what I was saying of how do we not operate in a way where we think we're disciples like Judas, but we end up operating to being detrimental to Jesus' well-being. Like, how do you put that? Right? Like, that can happen. And so what I'd want to propose to you is what I would think is, is intimacy without love is, is this kind of thing. It's probably a deep knowledge of the word. Right? Like, it's probably somebody who, like, really knows their Bible inside and out. And let me say, I'm hungry to know my Bible. Do not say, do not think that I'm like knocking on knowing your Bible. I'm just saying that I'm going to tee up a bunch of stuff that's good, and then I'm going to show you where it, it misses. Knowledge of the word. Show up to every church event, right? Like small group, every time. Meet with the pastor, right at the, the minute strike of the hand, right? Like shows up to church every Sunday. The actions are there, Sometimes even the miracles, in the case of Judas, he went out and did miracles, but your heart is far from him. Many with intimacy with the Lord use that place for their own gain rather than to love him and to lay down their life for him. This is what it is. It's two people drawing close to one another, that's intimacy, in order to fulfill their own desires, that's not love. It's exact the same the first half of the sentence is exactly the same. It's the in order to that makes it the difference between a Judas or a Jesus in this case. So let me read that again. Two people drawing close to one another, that's intimacy, in order to fulfill the desires of the other person, love. Two people drawing close to one another in order to fulfill my own desires, not love. This is great marriage advice. It is great friends advice. It is great discipleship device. Device? Advice. <laughs> Both. This is why it's so, this is why we need to have caution as we walk out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because you can do all the stuff you think you're doing awesome. I bet Judas, before the, before the Last Supper, I don't know, but I bet he thought he was doing pretty well. He crushed some miracles with the 72 when Jesus sent him out. They came back all fired up. They're like, man, Satan's falling down from the, you know, falling down like lightning. We're tearing apart his kingdom. He's one of the 12, you know, he's kissing Jesus. They're having intimate moments. And then something happens where all of a sudden it gets inconvenient for him to walk with Jesus, and boom, what the intimacy reveals is, well, intimacy without love. And so it's the, it's the so that piece that we need to unpack. It's the so that piece 
that we need to be aware of. It's, let's do all this stuff. Let's like, I pray all the time for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. It's from Ephesians. I love this apostolic prayer. Lord, give to me a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Wisdom, let me know how to apply your truth. Revelation, unveil to me the mysteries that are going on in your kingdom, in your mind, in your heart. I want to know you deeply. The knowledge of Christ Jesus is the one I'm after. That is intimacy. But the thing that I'll tell you that I've been going after personally lately is that I realized that I felt like I wanted to go deeper in my love for God. I wanted to go really deep in my love for God. Like, I have moments up here. I hope you guys aren't looking at me. I hope you're like in the glory and doing, but like, I love worship. I always talk about this. I love worship. And I think that worship is an expression of love towards God when done right. But you know what? It's kind of a cheap one in in, in this setting. It's very easy. It's very, it doesn't cost me much. It's me putting my arms up and saying, I love you, Jesus, and it's totally true, and I love it, and I'm not knocking it, but it doesn't cost me that much. I wouldn't say that it's an expression of love for God that is me laying down my life or me being sacrificial. It's me overflowing with joy for my Savior because I believe what he did for me. And so I get in this place and I exalt his name and I join with creation and I use my body and I use my voice to sing endless alleluias, right? Like, I love that. But it doesn't cost, it doesn't cost me anything. And so what, I, what we need to be careful with in our discipleship, this, this is the upside-down nature of the kingdom. But if you have a discipleship with Jesus that doesn't cost you anything, it's kind of like having a marriage that you're not feeding. It's kind of like having a child that you're not pouring out your life to. You will not have the same bond, nearly close, You will not experience the richness and depth of relationship and connection with God if your knowledge of him doesn't turn into a life where we're living for him. That the so that is not so that here. That the so that I show up, the reason why I show up is for him primarily. The way that we avoid the Judas is that we get into this place where we remind ourselves every morning that we take up our cross daily. That on the other side of this is the promise from God that it's abundant life. Right? So like, what if you go through a season where for six months, a year, two years, you come into this place and it's dry, or you open your word and it's dry, and you're, you're like doing the best, you're doing all the things that you know how to do, and you still just like, there's just no richness in it. It's like, what do you do? Well, I think you do all the things that you normally like meet with people, have them pray for you, like ask God, is there something going on? Like get into your word, like all that stuff. But my point is, is if that was the way it was for the rest of our lives and it wasn't joy-filled at all, he's still worthy and love is still laying down our life for our savior. And so the way this things gets twisted upside down is the richness on the other side of the love sacrifice is the thing that we want to pull over to the non-sacrifice life. And that doesn't happen. That's not, on, that's not on the option board. Like we either live the life, the discipleship life, where we show up for him, or we cut off the depth of life that comes from this mutual, this mutual back and forth of us laying down and having our orientation be around the other person. And that's where Judas fell down. And that's where the disciples fell down in this. But Judas exits this where the two people drawing close to one another intimacy with a kiss in order that he gets paid when Jesus gets turned over. It's the ultimate in I'm going to fulfill my needs at the expense of you. I have been compelled to prayer these days because I don't want to live in this place. Before I, I started preaching there, like prepping this sermon, I have been determining to wake up every morning an hour early so that I can spend an hour with the Lord before I get my day started. And for those of you who know me, man, I work full-time in tech. I work long hours. I have two kids at home. 
I have a wife, and I'm trying to pastor this church really well. There's other stuff too. Like an extra hour for me, that is really, 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 really hard. But I found out that in order for my heart to stay supple before the Lord, in order for me to feel confident that when he speaks, I'll listen and do, I think I realized that my fuel and my strength comes from my prayer life. It comes from my prayer life. You know, right before this passage, we talked about it about a month ago, Jesus says, hey, pray because your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Go pray so that you don't fall into temptation. It's right before this passage. And what I've noticed for me personally, I don't know if you guys have noticed this for you personally, but when I have a consistent string of time with the Lord where I'm meditating upon his word and I'm inviting him into my life and I'm asking for his strength and I'm doing that consistently in the morning, it propels my life in a way of fruitfulness that just doesn't happen otherwise. And so I realize that I'm too busy not to pray at the end of the day. I notice that my joy levels, my effectiveness at work, my ability to pastor this church, my ability to come into here and like enter right into worship and love Jesus, my ability to hear his voice and do the inconvenient, for me, I'm sharing with you my experience, the fuel and the fire for that comes out of a rich prayer life. And so what I would encourage you, I'm going to beat this drum until I feel like we're just it's so deep inside of us that we, it can never be dislodged. You're going you're gonna to say in 10 years, I went to this church and I went there for a year and the pastor said the same thing for 16 months. But in that season, I learned how to pray. In that season, I determined that I need to have a rich, quiet life with God where I get into a quiet spot, a private place, in a prayer closet or something like that. And I found out that he rewards me for that time, like it says in the Sermon on the Mount. This has been the thing that's been going through me these days. I love his touch in worship. I love it when he draws close. I love the moments of revelation. But I want to love him back extravagantly. And I think if I'm honest with myself... I see the areas where my heart is still resistant to him. And so the only thing that I know how to do these days is to go into prayer and get before him and to worship him and to get his word in me and to be thankful and to ask him for the things that are going on in my life. So this is not in my notes, but I feel like sometimes we never just give like a basics of like, what do you do in your quiet time? Right, like has anybody ever heard a teaching on like the basics of what you do in a quiet time? Yeah, like three people. What the heck is up with that? So I'll give you my basics of what I do in a quiet time, real time. And it's fairly structured, actually. It's actually fairly structured. So the first thing that I'll do every single time is I'll get before the Lord and say, I have no chance in finding you unless you reveal yourself. Recognizing your dependence upon the Lord as you enter into a quiet time is the best thing that you can possibly do. If I open your scriptures and you're not unveiling these, it's just going to be words on a page. But Holy Spirit, if you come and you breathe life into this worship time and you breathe life into my prayers and you breathe life into the word, then I'll be transformed by this. So I declare my utter dependence on you before I even start anything else. I'm 100% dependent upon you, even in my prayer life. I think a lot of us have dry prayer lives because we don't understand that the whole thing is dependent upon the Spirit of God making it rich. So we keep flopping around in the dark trying to figure it out. So I always start with that. And then what I'll usually do is I'll usually get into the Word. This is where I kind of like feast on the Word for a little bit. So I'll go to Nancy's post on Facebook. <laughs> Psalm 119 has been richness to my soul these days. Thank you, Nancy, for finding that. Well, not finding it, but, you know, <laughs> posting it. And I'll get in the Word, and I'll meditate on it, and I'll get His truth flowing through me. I'll be like, oh, yes, God. So this is not anything about my life. It's not anything about a kingdom. It, it's just pure truth. And I get that flowing through me. And I allow the Spirit of God. I don't just read it and fly by it. I'll take a passage and I'll just chew on it. 
I'll be chewing on it, and I'll, oh, your word is life to me, God. The richness of your ways is better than gold and silver. The richness of your ways is better than gold, and I'll just go over it and over and over again, and eventually, I'll start to get really happy, and I'll start to get, like, pretty fired up and full of faith, and from that point, I go into a time where I say, God, is there anything before we start communing and, and, and connecting in a deeper way, is there anything in my life that you want to talk about? And I'll let him lead the conversation. If it didn't happen in the scripture, I'll say anything is on board here. You want to talk about my sin? Let's talk about my sin. You want to talk about what you want me to do today? Let's talk about that. You want to unveil yourself to me in some way? Let's talk about that. You are the leader of this conversation. And so I'll sit there for a while and I'll ask the Lord to lead me into some kind of time where he is the leader. And then I'll go through that period and then I'll come to the other side and then I'll have my time of prayer and supplication. This is the time where the things that are honestly on my heart that I want to bring before him and I want to ask him if he'll enter into and if he'll move in power on. So this is where I pray for my friends. This is where I pray for this church. This is the way I pray for effectiveness in my job. This is where I pray for my wife and children. Like all of that stuff. It's all at the end. My agenda is at the end of this. It's a direct reflection of what I was just talking about. I'm here for you. I'm here for you first and me second. And so it shows up in the way that I structure my time with him. And then I'll pray over a few things. And the coolest part is as I'm praying and sometimes speaking in tongues and like going after it deep in prayer, I'll start to get good theology out of what I'm praying. And I'll be like, oh, that is an aspect of who you are that I would have never even thought of because you put a prayer for me for that person in that way. Like, that is amazing. And so I'll start getting revelation of who he is through the prayers that I'm praying and the prayers that he gives me for people. And it's super rich and all that stuff. And then I'll end and then I'll go on and, and that's, that's the time. It's almost the same every time. But it's all structured around, God, I'm here for you first. And I've found that to be my fuel in my life. The same dynamic plays out with our relationships with our church and with our friends. The reason why we have membership, we talked about membership up here a second ago. The reason why we have membership, the reason why we have home groups, is it's a space for you to show up in your community with your primary disposition, not for you. That's the difference between being a visitor and a member. That's why we have a commitment moment, because you step over that line, and you're like, oh, now this is my family? Oh, got it. Now, now I'm here for what I can give, not what I can get primarily. Home groups are exactly the same week, the way. The way you destroy a really good homework is, home group is everybody showing up for what they can get. It's like two leeches trying to suck blood out of one another. It's just like marriage. It's just like friendship. As soon as you cut off that posture of life and you turn into a Judas, it destroys things. This is so central to the Christian walk. It shows up everywhere. And a healthy church exists by healthy Christians that know how to get with God, feast on Him, and come into relationships ready to give, ready to love, ready to lay down life. And so that's the invitation of membership is you move from a consumer where it's about you in the sense of like, oh yeah, that guy, that guy preaches too long or man, like every time, you know, he just rambles on about prayer for eight, 15 months. I'm not into this anymore, right? Like there's a, there's a like res this, I'm a consumer of this thing too. Now this is my family. Like now I can still have that opinion, but then I go to the pastor and tell him, he needs to change his topic, or, you know, you're part of the solution. You're, you're in it to, to prosper the thing that you're going to. And so this shows up everywhere. I want to get back into the passage, and I want to talk about the other side of this, is, which is like, how does Jesus remain in a place of surrender fueled by love? Because he does it so well here. Think about this. The disciples leave, Judas betrays him, but he sets his face towards the cross in the exact same moment. How does that happen? How does he model this so well? Not only does he stay in love to the Father, he chooses the hard path, but there's not even bitterness in him towards Judas. He calls him friend in the passage. How does the dude go through what he's going through 
betrayed by Judas and not end up with any bitterness towards Judas even? I think we can agree that Jesus crushes this moment and does a pretty good job. He never feels like the victim to his circumstance. Isn't that crazy? He goes through the hardest thing you could ever imagine. Check this out. God is asking him to lay down his life so he can pour out his wrath on him to save all of humanity. But let's remember the first part, too. And then his best friends desert him, and one of his own betrays him and turns him over to death. And he goes through this feeling empowered. That is wild. And so let's read this. In verse 52, it says this. Peter, it doesn't say Peter in this, but it's Peter. Gotta love Peter. Peter busts out his sword, and he chops off the ear of the high priest's servant. What is this an expression of? This is an expression of taking control of a situation <laughs> through earthly means, right? He busts out a sword, and he lops off the guy's ear, but God bless Peter, man. He's probably thinking from earlier that night where Jesus said, you're going to be a coward, and you're going to betray me. He's like, no, I'm not, you know. <laughs> Pulls out his sword, he's like, ah! you know. <laughs> Horrible aim, he only gets an ear, but like... <laughs> And so Jesus says, put your sword back in its place, Jesus says to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father right now, and he will at once place at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Oh, I love Jesus. He is so awesome. First of all, the first part, using earthly means to control what he is supposed to be controlling leads to your own destruction. Okay, that's the first part. You try to control something that you're not supposed to be controlling, and it's going to lead to at least a ton of anxiety because you do not have the mechanism to control what he is supposed to be controlling, and you won't have grace to do it either. It'll lead to a bunch of anxiety. In fact, I think most of our anxiety exists in this place trying to control what he's supposed to be controlling. So here it is. Put your sword away. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Okay? Lesson number one. If we try to control what he's supposed to be controlling, it leads to our own destruction. In this case, it's physical. There's a huge army around him. But in our case, it's most often emotionally through stress that then becomes physical. Number two. Let's read the next verse. Do you think that I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of agents? A legion is about 5,000 to make it even more awesome, right? And he's got 12. Why do you think he has 12? One for him and one for each of the disciples. Judas probably doesn't get one anymore. <laughs> I don't know, right? But there's 12. He's got 12 legions. But I can release 5,000 angels per disciple, well, and me, the rabbi, right now. I am not a victim to my scenario. I have full trust in the Lord that if he wants to take control of this situation, and even check this out. This one's kind of like turns your mind up theology-wise. In fact, I don't even really know what to do this one, with this one. But we know what the will of God is in this situation, right? It's for Jesus to go to the cross to save humanity. Jesus says right here that if he changed his mind in alignment with God's will, and he called upon angels to save him from the situation, that the Father would do it. I don't know what to do with that, honestly. The good thing is that Jesus always chooses the will of the Father, but maybe it's this. Maybe that the Father is so serious about making way for us to be able to choose in, Jesus included, because without choice, it's not love. And so maybe Jesus needs to know, or Jesus has the full power the whole way through to bail from this situation, because if he didn't have a choice out, all of a sudden it's not love anymore. Maybe there's something like that. But again, it feels like mystery to me, so you can do with what you want with that. But I think the, 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 the thing that we can definitely pull out of verse 53 is he calls to mind who he is. He knows who he is. 
So the first one is he's meek enough to know that he can't take control of the situation that he's not supposed to be in control of. Live by the sword, die by the sword. Number two, he remembers who he is. He is the son of God who at any moment can call upon his father who loves him so much that he'll deploy an army of angels to move on his behalf. He knows exactly who he is. And number three, he's utterly surrendered to the will of God. That's in verse 54. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? These things are, are, I would propose to you, keys to living in love and surrender. Meekness to know where you act and where you don't act. Now, one of the things that I want to talk about here is there's, there's an interesting thing is even as we talk about surrendering to the will of God in verse 54, there's a really interesting thing where everything happening right here is in passive verb tenses. So if you go through the, if you go up in the chapter, everything is like, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He says this three times, may this cup be taken from me. In verse 45 of this same chapter, he says, look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners, delivered into the hands of sinners. If you know Jesus's ministry, he's not often passive like this. He's voluntarily set himself in the hands of the Father to do whatever he wants in this moment. But if you know the life of Christ, this is not always the case. This is not often his posture. I'll give you an example. How about cleansing the temple? Did he have a cavalier stance towards cleansing the temple? Lord, if it be your will, send a wind through and sweep up all the money and the pigeons and fly them out the left side of the temple. Well, it's not happening, so I guess it's not the will of the Lord. You know, it's, it's not that at all. He comes in ready to move and act. He is an active agent in much of his ministry. Earlier, they try to arrest him, and he sneaks through the crowd to escape. He's like Houdini in the middle there, right? Like they try to grab him, and somehow he like pops out the back. And I mean, that's what it sounds like when you read this passage. It's really funny. But he gets out. He sneaks through the crowd, and he leaves because it's not yet his hour. And so the crazy thing is that I think we need to know here is, is that in this case, it's clear that following God is yielding to the circumstances as a huge act of trust. But interestingly, this isn't always the case with Jesus. And so why do the disciples even have a sword? Because Jesus doesn't always submit to his situations as if it's the will of the Lord. Sometimes we're called to take action to avoid and overcome the sins of others— Thus, we need a sword for protection. And other times, we're called to submit, just like Jesus did when he submitted himself to the sins and the powers of others willingly. He fully submits. For some of us, it's easier to fight. For some of us, we're sword people. And for others of us, we're like soaking mat people. Right? For some of us, it's really easy when God says, I want you to get up and I want you to intercede. I want you to fight for this city. This city is not doing well. I want you to get your sandals on. I guess people still wear sandals. And I want you to go out there and I want you to feed people and I want you to pray and I want you to heal the sick and I want you to evangelize. For some of us, that is very easy. For others of us, the mat time is like amazing. Lord, I have so much faith in you. Man, your goodness. Like, you're just going to sweep through this city and revival's going to happen right here while I lay on my back. Right? Like, there's this full surrender, whatever you've got, God. I'll say for me, I feel like it's easier for me to be the mat person. And the reason is, is because, like, if God tells me to do something kind of big and risky, I always have this layer over for me that's like, man, did I hear him right? You know, it's like, I don't want to go and, like, do some crazy act. And so then I'll just be like, well, Lord, if it's your will, like, inspire me to do that. Or, you know, like, that's the easy path for me because I'm the mat person. Peter's probably the sword person, right? Like, he just wants to jump up and act. Nancy is probably the sword person. She's kind of, she's kind of hard. She's kind of, like, impressive that way. But what I'd say is, I was telling you how important our prayer life is the reason, again, why our prayer life is so important 
is because you don't know which one of these God is calling you to at any moment unless you know how to hear his voice. And so you bust out your sword Peter style and he's like, what are you doing? Even in another gospel, Jesus told him to buy the sword. I think it's in Luke. But he says, sell some stuff and go buy a couple swords. And then Peter busts it out and lops off an ear and he's like, what are you doing? He's like, you told me to buy a sword. I didn't say to use it. It's just supposed to look good, you know? Like, But this is like a real key to our Christian life. We need to be attuned to the spirit of God's voice to know what we're doing in these situations. What does surrender even look like? What does it look like to love God? Sometimes faith is not doing a thing. And other times faith is doing everything, it feels like. And we only know if we're connected to the spirit enough to say is like, okay, <laughs> Do I use the sword? Or is this like decoration this time? You know? And it can be really confusing. And so this is where the intimacy and the live relationship with the Lord and the supple heart to be able to go either way and trust and faith is so important because we don't know. The disciples are ready to fight for Jesus, but they aren't willing to lay down their lives for him. They're willing to fight in their flesh. They bust out the swords. They're ready to go. And then Jesus says, hey, it's not that time. What it looks like to be my disciple in this situation is to lay down your life and allow the sins of others to hit you. The reason the disciples leave is because they're willing to fight for Jesus. They're not willing to lay down for Jesus. And so I think like Peter and the rest of the disciples in their zeal, they're like, we'll never betray you. We're in. Let's do this. But it was still on their terms. And Jesus says, you can't follow me that way. You can't follow me on your terms. When I say lay down, we lay down. When I say we fight, we fight. When I say we cleanse the temple, we get whips. When I say we're going to the cross, we allow ourselves to be abused and persecuted. But this is what discipleship looks like. Once they realize that discipleship in this moment is embracing martyrdom, not fighting to the death, they're done with it and they flee. That's the end of this passage. In verse 56 it says, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Hey guys, this is the will of the Lord for us to, to go down like this. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So what do we do with all this stuff? I've been talking for a long time. What do we do with all this stuff? I think the first thing is that the starting point is we can understand that there's this dynamic that the stuff up front can look exactly the same. But on the, other, on the other side of the why are we doing this stuff, if it doesn't lead with laying down our life primarily in an expression of love to God, but it looks like us trying to get life from him, that's, that's not a discipleship that will last. That is the illusion of love because there's intimacy present, but there's no love there. And I think just like remembering that this is a dynamic that can play out in our connection with God, just like it plays out in marriages and just like it plays out with kids and all of that stuff, then we change our posture of discipleship and we remind ourselves every day, oh yeah, I take up my cross daily. Even in my quiet time, the expression of this is that you first, what are we going to talk about? It's your agenda. Talk about whatever you want. Use the whole hour to do nothing if that's what you want to do. I'm here waiting for you. I yield to you. And as we do this, I'd, I'd just like to remind us to, Jesus did such an amazing job of avoiding the feelings of bitterness towards his situation or towards people 
because he knew who he was, he knew that God was with him, and he always felt empowered that the will of God would come forth as he obeyed. So I'd love to invite the worship team up, or Steve. And I just want to give us space to to do business with the Lord. I feel like if this type of message doesn't challenge, like, I don't know, maybe it's just that we don't speak the same language with God, because this is like right where I'm at right now, guys. I feel like it's like, man, I want to go all the way, but it's not just about more acquisition of knowledge and spiritual goosebumps and like I truly want to lay down my life for my king and I know that on the other side of that posture of life is the richness of life it's the abundant life that we all crave every one of us craves that it's just about whether we try to go and get it for ourselves or whether we trust it into his hands everybody wants joy everybody wants to be filled with life everybody wants to feel secure everybody wants to feel adored as a child of God There's the path where you go for that as your ends or there's the path that you walk that's Jesus where you go for loving on him with everything that you are and all of your being and it's the byproduct on the other side. It feels subtle, but it's actually all the difference in the world. And so let's just stand together. I'll pray for us and launch us into a time of prayer and then we'll open up the altars for anybody who wants to come up and get some prayer. Lord, I thank you for the model of Jesus always. God, I thank you that he not only showed us what it looks like to be obedient, but he actually showed us what it looks like to walk the path of abundant life. And God, your ways are so crazy and weird and upside down that you tell us in your scripture that in order to gain life, you have to lose it. But it's strange in application and it's counterintuitive lord and so what i ask in this moment as we've talked about this crazy weird principle lord i pray god that you would give us the strength and the faith to be able to walk deeper into this life deeper into this life of upside down discipleship of following jesus god i pray god that this wouldn't just be a group or a gathering of people as individuals and as a church that would know you really well, even like Judas knew you really well. But God, that we would be a people that love you, that love you, that know what it means to lay down our lives for our God. And by extension, lay down our lives for one another. God, we would be crazy to think that looking at the model of Jesus going to the cross is something that in itself feels like, yes, I'm excited to do that. God, we know that that is what discipleship could look like if you have us walk that path. But God, our declaration is that a few things. One, you are in control, God. You are in control and your path is the perfect path. Your ways are better than our ways. God, you are the God. We are just the people. We are the creation. And so, God, we say that your ways are perfect. We say that your path is perfect, even when we don't understand. And, God, what I ask is that you would fill us with strength in life, God, to be able to love you richly with everything that we are and everything that we have. God, God, I pray that today would turn into rich, fueling prayer times for many people in this place. God, that people would go in dependence on you to the quiet place and say, Jesus, if I'm going to love you, you need to fill me with strength in this prayer time. Lord, I want to love you so deeply. Fill me with your power. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would use this word, God, 
to at the end of the line have a bunch of joy-filled, filled-up saints who love you and lay down their lives for you and are seeing the power of the kingdom flow through their lives to transform this world for the glory of Jesus. So we give you all the glory in this place, God. As we open up the prayer altars, I pray that you do powerful and great things as people come before you in community and get prayer for the things that you're speaking. We give you the glory and the honor. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.